Hey, don't you walk away from me. You don't know who you're dealing with. Don't ever tell me what I can't do, ever! Welcome to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dolan Thomas, and that was uh, John Locke from uh, Lost uh, telling somebody, you know, don't ever tell me what I can't do. Um, and it's a phrase that turns out comes up a lot on Lost so many times that there's actually a supercut on YouTube of all the times somebody says it, mostly Locke. Um, it's kind of awesome. But uh, today's topic is reactance. And reactance is basically um, your mind's my way of saying anytime anyone tells you you can't do something, you immediately want to do that something more than anything else ever. Um, and it's this idea that like anyone, some anytime somebody prohibits something, you immediately see that as like a threat to your freedom and you assume that like even more threats to your freedom are coming so you start to get you know very reactive to that and you start to want to do that very thing they've told you um not to do and any kind of anything that like implies even a threat to your freedom ends up like causing you to react you know in this way that gets you to assert your independence and it has some really unpredictable outcomes it's one of my favorite um biases uh because it is just sort of fascinating all the ways it manifests itself um even when you're not thinking about it so you know, the, the, the obvious is things like, you know, just someone saying, you can't tell me what to do. Um, there's also this idea of reverse psychology, right? So if you want someone to do something, tell them they can't do it, right? So that's kind of a, a trope. Um, but uh, the most immediate personal example is back when movie pirating was like a new thing. And you would see these little um, ads before movies started when you would go to the theater and there'd, there'd be this little ad about how bad pirating movies is and like don't do it. And it's funny because like to my mind, like what most people probably took away from that was, oh, wait, we can pirate movies now? That sounds awesome, right? <laughs> you know, but it's this very like reactance kind of like don't tell me what, you know, I can't do. Um uh, another example, just from pop culture, like uh, the musical The Fantastics, like part of the premise is that this um, one uh, group of parents wants their kid to uh, marry the, uh, this other group of parents, the, the, the their kid, like they both want their kids, their mutual kids to, to, to get married. And so what they do is they say, oh, you can't see that boy or oh, you can't see that girl and like make it this forbidden thing. So that obviously the one thing they want to do is try to, you know, get together with, you know, the neighbor's kid. Um, but it's that sort of thing. But the thing is this actually, like, you can test this and, and get those kinds of results, right? So there was one experiment where they, um, had a sign, um, that said, please don't write on these walls. And they had another sign on a different wall that said, do not write on these walls under any circumstances. And you can guess what happened, right? The one that said, do not write on these walls under any circumstances got way more graffiti than the one that just said, please don't write on these walls, right? It's because you used words like do not and under any circumstances. And those words have value, right? Things like must, need, cannot deny that. Any reasonable person would agree that. Like words like that prime you to, to be reactive and say, what do you mean any reasonable person? Are you saying I'm not a reasonable person? Fine, I'm going to disagree with you just to prove you wrong, right? Whereas softer language like you have a chance to, or there is some evidence that, or we leave the choice to you, right? Like that, like sort of makes things, you know, um, it, it doesn't put me in a corner, right? Maybe I should have used the nobody puts baby in a corner quote. Maybe I'll put that in later. But anyway, that, that, that's the idea. So, um, uh, if you want to, um, take away some of the sting of reactants. One thing that does this is uh, the notion of an emergency, right? And um, we've seen this historically used to some nefarious ends from time to time. But things like the Patriot Act, right? Like there was an emergency. Okay, we're willing to give up some of our freedoms uh, because we think when once the emergency is over, you'll give those freedoms back, right? Um, we've seen that used in lots of ways throughout history. I don't need to go into it, but that's the sort of, those, those are actually times when we'll say, you know what? 
I'm not going to be reactive right now. I don't think you're actually impinging upon my freedoms permanently or that you're going to take more stuff away. I get it. We all need to pitch in. Um, but uh, another thing uh, on the other end, like that increases reactance, um, and this comes into play when you're trying to do things like addiction therapy, is confrontation. Right, so very confrontational approaches to, um, like, say, alcoholism recovery, uh, tend to work less effectively because all of a sudden it's like, what do you mean I can't drink? Right, <laughs> you know, um, uh, it's it's that reactance thing happening. Now, a lot of what I'm going to get into now comes from an article uh, by Dr. Simon Moss, um, which is just fascinating unpacking of all the sort of less predictable ways that reactance manifests itself. And one of those is space, right? So if you feel like you're in a confined space, your mind starts to become more reactive. It starts to, uh, you start to exhibit reactance more because just being in a confined space makes you feel like you have fewer options. And now you want to assert, no, I'm still autonomous. I'm still independent. And one of the ways they showed this was they did an experiment where uh, you walk down a hallway and you get, uh, you can pick like from uh you can pick three of any, like, you know, candy bars. There's these candy bars at the end. And there's, like, three different types of candy bars to choose from, and there's lots of them. Um, and you get to choose... You can pick three of them. So you can pick three of the same candy bar. You can pick three different candy bars. You can pick two of one, you know, whatever. Any combination you want. So you go down the, the hallway, and they had two different hallways. One was really narrow, and one was really wide. The people who went down the wide hallway usually picked three of the same one, right? Whatever their favorite candy bar was, they picked three of the same one. The people who went down the narrow hallway, much more often, they picked three different candy bars, right? And like, what would it matter, right? But here's the thing, because they were walking down that narrow hallway, it primed them to feel like their choice was being narrowed, right? That it, it, it caused that reactance thing to happen. And so to assert their independence, they picked three different candy bars, even if they didn't necessarily like three different candy bars, even if only one of them was actually their favorite. Um, and I find that just fascinating that any, even like suggesting confinement and suggesting that you have fewer options suddenly will make you act that way. Um, they did a similar thing where they asked people to choose which charity they were going to donate to, and if they put them in a confined space, they were more likely to pick a charity they had never heard of, right? Or a less popular, or less well-known charity. And like, what is with that, right? But it's this idea that like, no, I'm not going to just go with the thing that, you know, the man tells me I should pick. No, I'm just going to pick this thing I've never heard of just to assert that I can make choices, right? I still have freedom even though I'm in this confined space. Um, another thing, uh, that it takes so little to actually make you feel or have a sense of confinement. So even if it wasn't like physical confinement, even getting people to unscramble sentences where something in the sentence implied confinement, right? That was enough to prime them so that they would behave, you know, in that similar way where they'd pick the three candy bars or pick the unfamiliar charity. Like, they would, they would exhibit reactance even if all you did to prime them was have them unscramble words that were associated with confinement, right? Not even actually confine them. Um, so it's fascinating how little it takes. And then if you think about, like, um, when you're on the street, Right, and you have people who were like on the street, like selling something or trying to get you to sign up to support a charity or something like that. Um, if they ask for a minute of your time and they wait until you're really close to them before they do that, you're less you're 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 less likely to say, yeah, I can spare a moment, right? Because again, the distance is closed, and now you feel more confined, and now you feel like you have less freedom. If they actually did it earlier when you were still like you know. 10 feet away or something, you'd actually be more likely to say, um, yeah, sure, right? Because in a weird way, now you can make a choice, 
You have more time to decide, right? You're less confined. Like, this actually happens. It's crazy. Um, and another thing that, like, you know, given that whole, if I feel confined, I'm more likely to go some- with something unfamiliar. Well, marketers have caught on to that, right? So if you're trying to launch an unfamiliar product, you do it in a crowded store, right? Where people feel less confined, like they have less choice, and they're more likely to take a chance on something they never- they've never heard of. It's these two things that should have nothing to do with each other and yet actually are proven, you know, to have this kind of value. Um, another weird unpredictable version of this is money. So when we deal with money, we start to get weird things start to happen. I mean, and there's a whole other podcast we could do about how money makes us weird. But one of the things that happens is you start to feel like you really want to assert your independence, right? Because I have money now, I can do what I want. So, and, and alternately, it could be about, oh, money makes you think of, I have to go to a job I don't like in order to make money. So money makes me think of being confined, of not having options. So anytime I'm around money, I want to assert my independence. So either way you look at it, money makes you want to assert your independence and actually actually makes you, it primes you for reactance. And they've done this, right? They've done the experiments where it's like, um, if I prime you with money, and the way they did it in this particular experiment was, again, they just had people unscramble um, sentences where one of the words in the sentence had something to do with money. And then other people unscrambled sentences that didn't have anything to do with money. The ones who unscrambled, um, the, um, both groups were then asked to basically recommend software. Um, and uh, in one case, a professor, they were, they were exposed to a professor recommending, this is the software you want to go with. And in the other cases, you know, they weren't. So the people who had been primed with money, right, who had to unscramble the sentences about money, we're less likely to go with the software the professor recommended because no professor is going to tell me what to do, right? Whereas the ones who didn't unscramble anything to do with money, like, they were fine, actually. They were actually more likely to go around with the professor, right? Because, hey, it's the professor's recommending it, and I'm, you know, uh, no one's threatening my freedom, so, yeah, I'll go with what he wants, right? Um, but it's just weird how even the suggestion of money can cause that to happen. Um, and... Here's the thing, even if it isn't from the outside, right, some authority figure or some physical confinement making you reactive, even your own self-talk can get you to exhibit this reactance thing. So, for example, they look at people who say things like, I will succeed, or I'm going to do that, right, versus, will I, maybe I, you know, that, that kind of self-talk where you're saying, I am going to do this, or I will do this, even your own mind can say, wait, 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 you can't tell me what to do. Even if it's me, right? <laughs> even if it's you telling you what to do, even you can't tell you what to do. That's how extreme this gets. And the way they've sort of like demonstrated this is they have people like, for example, write down the word I will um, 20 times. And then another group will write down will I 20 times. And then they have them perform the same like cognitive tasks. Some, I think it's like an unscrambling task or something like that. Um, and the ones who, um, who wrote I will did worse than the ones who wrote will I. Like the ones who were, will I, like, lasted longer at the task, felt more creative, felt, and they felt like they had more freedom, right, to do something versus the I will people who felt restricted and were exhibiting reactants. Um, even, like, setting up, setting it up as a question, and again, they've tried this, have people write this down first and then do a task, you know, will I do it? Yes, I will. Like, writing the will I do it first and then writing yes, I will, or saying that, you know, is more effective than just saying yes, I will. Right, because just yes, I will on its own for whatever reason. People think, oh, I'm trying to tell myself what to do, right? Versus just responding to a question where it's like, oh, okay, I still have my freedom somehow. Um, one of my favorite um, slash most horrifying <laughs> versions of this of reactance is this thing called moral licensing, and I highly recommend 
you look, I think it's the pilot episode of Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History podcast, but he talks about moral licensing. And what moral licensing basically is, is let's say I vote for Obama, right? And let's say I am a not black person who votes for Obama, (laughs) someone who might be um, stereotyped as being racist, right? This weird thing happens where now suddenly, now that I've proven my credentials as not a racist, I feel more free to say racist things. And this actually happened. They saw this happen after Obama got elected, where there was this sudden moral license around saying terrible things about black people um, because, well, I've already proven that I am not a racist because I voted for Obama. So now I get to do it. It's that moral license. I have a license now to do whatever I want. Um, and in the podcast, he goes into all these sort of examples of countries that elected a female leader once and then never did it again because all of a sudden it's like, oh, we've proved we're not sexist. So now we don't have to, um, but now we can go back to being sexist basically. <laughs> um, so he tells it way better than I do, but check that out. But there are even sort of smaller experiments around this. Um, and one of my favorites is they have people come in who have already sort of like filled out a survey saying, yes, I consider myself, you know, a very green ecological person. I'm eco-friendly. I try to live an eco-friendly lifestyle. And what they do is they say, okay, um, they have them like fill out a form that basically talks about their shopping habits, you know, and then they get uh, feedback on, on what they wrote saying basically, hey, you're awesome, you're green, or hey, you could probably do better, or hey, you're not green at all. And then they say, okay, we'd also like to test your creativity. Can you put together this hat out of like this construction paper? But what they're actually doing is they're seeing how many of the people who then, you know, build the hat or whatever, when they're done, do they recycle, Right. They have like a recycling bin there and a trash bin. Like how many people take the stuff that they didn't use that they throw away? Do they actually put it in a recycling bin? And here's the thing. The people who got positive feedback, right, after they filled out the thing about their shopping habits, the people who got positive feedback saying, hey, you're awesome, you're totally green, good for you, were less likely to recycle because they had already basically gotten a little card saying, hey, I'm eco-friendly. I don't have to prove that anymore. I'm not going to recycle. Like that's the kind of thing, right? Um... That, that this, like, they had been freed from the burden of, like, you know, kind of having to react to someone telling them they should be green. It's like, nope, I've already proven I'm green. I don't have to do this anymore. But that's fascinating to me that, you know, it, in this experiment, they even were less, like, able to recognize green words, right? So words associated with green, they kind of glossed over and didn't recognize as quickly. And it's basically almost like the mind's way of saying, okay, I actively have to, you know... Um, uh, prove and pay attention to things like being green or um, being inclusive or whatever for such time, until such time as someone has given me a, the stamp of approval saying, okay, you've done it now, you're green now, Whew, I don't have to think about that anymore, right? And like that version of inclusivity or that version of PCness or whatever it is, or even PC itself, right? Like as a concept, like no wonder there's a backlash against PC because that is like begging for reactance, right? Or even if you don't immediately react against it, you'll act good just long enough for someone to say, okay, you're good, we think you're inclusive, we think you're not racist, Now I can go back to doing what I really want, right? (laughs) So, you know, any sort of attempt to create inclusivity or green behavior that's really based on rules or telling people what they can or can't do is doomed to fail or at least is vulnerable to reactance and this kind of like, you know, lip service until you tell me I'm doing okay, at which point I will simply go back to doing the thing that I always wanted to do anyway. Um, That's kind of a 
long-winded way of going about it. But I think that's sort of one of the ultimate, like, almost political or social impacts of reactance is you can't just try to tell people what to do and think that's going to cut it um, for all sorts of interesting reasons. Anyway, um, that is all for this week. Uh, we will see you next time. I'm David Dylan Thomas for the Cognitive Bias Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.